0: the team performance podcast with spencer horn and christian napier hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the team performance winning ways for uncertain times podcast i'm christian napier joined as always by the illustrious and celebrated spencer horn spencer how are
1: you Good, celebrated in my own mind, and good to be with you, Christian, as always. Just, uh, you know, we've been sitting here chatting, and, and we're like, should we turn on the recorder? No. <laughs> Sometimes we just got to talk offline, and I just love uh, being with you. And so great to great to be with you today well i
0: say celebrate it because i've seen some things that you've been putting up on linkedin and some keynotes and things that you've been doing and looks like you've been receiving some really positive feedback on those and all the great work that you do so congratulations
1: (laughs) yeah thank you no we and it's really hard in these covid times right and i was able to give a keynote to about 482 people and that was that was exciting. And yes, got great reviews and uh, very, very happy about that. Well, give us a little bit of a
0: sense of the keynote. I mean, that's kind of difficult to do in these challenging times, right? You had to do this thing remotely or were you able to do this in person? You know, what was the yeah, keynote like? No,
1: it was right here in, in my studio. And um, so it was a, it was a two day, professional development uh you know associations put on these professional development days they do them on an annual basis a lot of times and so they're happening all over the world all the time so different associations and i was lucky enough to be the keynote speaker and there were you know whole host or or roster of speakers and so how i did that i had 60 minutes and my topic was staying relevant in the age of big data and ai right as you know AI and and big data are taking jobs left and right. I mean, if you, you know, you've got Roland Garros, I don't know if you're a tennis fan, but you've got the uh, French Open on right now and, and AI is taking over for it. Now they're no longer having judges. It's all being done by, you know, Hawkeye and, and a artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is hiring. They're reviewing contracts. They, they can uh, diagnose medical uh, diseases. They can create, uh, legal plans. And so jobs are, we're, we're losing jobs to, to COVID. And what I'm also finding is that C- CEOs that I talked to all across the country are struggling to hire people right now. If you can believe that, um, they're, they're having a hard time finding people. Unemployment is 8.4%, which is down from the 15% it was here in the United States earlier in the year. And that is uh, seemingly crazy, but what's happening is is people are collecting unemployment. They don't want to go back to work. They're scared, and so this is actually forcing companies to implement their AI strategies sooner. I I, I don't know if you remember. I was consulting with a company last year in Ogden, Utah, called. Um, oh, I'm I'm, I'm blanking. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, oh my gosh, you're gonna have to you have to do this out, but I was. Uh, consulting with a company called AG Monitoring, and they have about 400 employees. And they will, in the next two years, as they per, uh, perfect their AI system, they'll cut their employees in half. All of that work will be done by machines. And there are experts that predict that by 2025 I mean five years from now, we could ha- we could lose up to 50% of jobs to AI. I don't think it's going to be that high Christian. I think it might be even, let's say it's 50- 15%. That's, you know, double our unemployment rate right now. That could, that could be a significant impact. But what I have found is that there are skills that no matter what machines can't replace. And so I was talking about what those skills are for you as professionals, whatever you have, if you develop these skills that you will be employable in the future, even as machines start to take take over our jobs. And one of the challenges to answer your question that I couldn't do that I normally do live is I, I like to take six volunteers from the audience, even during the keynote and demonstrate the impact of effective communication. And I couldn't do that. So one of the things I did while I was in Texas last week visiting my daughter is I I got six volunteers and I recorded them. So I I did that on uh, on video and then I inserted that in, in my presentation. Um, and so that was one of the things I had to do to adapt my my keynote to to the virtual format.
0: Well, that really sounds super interesting. And not to go down on this path too much, because I know we've got a lot to talk about on our it's own right. podcast <laughs> yeah. here, but I find what you're talking about fascinating. And so I want to ask, well, I guess I yeah. want to make a comment and ask a question. So okay. the, the comment is that ever since the Industrial Revolution, we've had this conversation about technology yep. replacing jobs, and we seem to find other things to do. You know, so it yes. didn't matter uh yep. steam engines uh, or, uh, you know, it automated harvesting equipment. Yeah. The, <laughs> you know, uh, or, you know, whatever it is or computers, whatever, uh, yeah. you know, robotic manufacturing, uh, taking away manufacturing jobs uh, up until COVID we were enjoying historically low unemployment levels here in the United States. And no doubt that, AI will cause an earthquake in, in the whole process, just like some of these other technologies have done, and maybe even more. uh, But other things might pop up that we may not even have considered. And I'm curious to get your take on what those things might be.
1: So, so first of all, great question. And your observation is correct. Uh, There has always been fear of, of technology, right? The word sabotage, do you know where that comes from? I do not. So a sabre is a, as a French wooden shoe. And when the looms, when the industrial revolution hit France and you started having the looms take over the the cottage industry where they would, you know, make clothes in in, in their homes and sell them, the looms threatened their livelihood, many of the the cottage uh, uh, clothing makers. And so they would take their wooden shoes and throw them into the machines to break them. And so we, got this word sabotage from, from this very you know, instance of technology taking over jobs, right? And so there's always been this fear. And it historically, every time you implement new technology, there's actually been a growth in labor because now you have new jobs that are created to uh, associate with running the machines or something, and the economy grows, therefore there's more opportunity, and it seems to go on and on. However, until six years ago, that was the case. Something has happened in the last six years that has changed that. And we are actually seeing a depression in in working wages and unemployment for the first time in history. And what's happening is is that the capability or, you know, Moore's law, I don't know if you remember, um, Roger, was it Roger Moore in 1965 said that. It was a uh, Gordon Moore. Gordon Moore, that's right. You're Roger Moore was double oh seven. Gordon <laughs> Moore, <laughs> that's right. Uh, it, he said that the number of um, uh, uh, of circuits that you could have on a transistor, right, would would double every two years, and then he he increased that to eighteen months. Well, what's happened is we've we've kind of gotten to the point where you know from five to ten transistors that was not a or, or circuits that wasn't a transistors on a circuit i'm getting it all confused but that wasn't a big deal but we went from five to ten to twenty million uh transistors on a circuit board that's game changing and now we've kind of we've kind of gotten to the maximum number of of transistors on a circuit we can't micro we can't make them any smaller now what's happening is that we're increasing the power of those circuits and now it's starting to grow exponentially And so basically what this means is that machines the iq of machines by 2025 will surpass the iq of 90% of americans they're getting smarter they're getting faster there's nothing that they can't do and for whatever reason in the last 6 years that has it has broken the chain of increasing our economy and jobs and and so the trend is is changing so i don't know to answer your question what the future will bring but i do know that for example if you're a lawyer your clients aren't going to accept a game plan from, from a machine. They need a lawyer to be able to present those ideas and get buy-in. right. Convicts are not going, any of us are going to accept a, a judgment from a machine. We need judges to be able to give you that, that, that verdict, right? Doctors can be eliminated through diagnosis and, and probably surgery eventually, but, but, Patients aren't going to accept those diagnoses from a machine. We need people that can actually connect and have empathy. And empathy is much bigger than really understanding other people's emotions. It's so much more than that. And so the skills that we need to be relevant in the future are the human skills, which oddly enough are the skills that we're losing at a rapid rate because of technology. We're actually giving up a lot of our human traits through because of technology. Anyway, I don't know the answer, but I do know that the more human skills for the first time in history are more and more important than, 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 ever before.
0: Well, allow me to give you a little bit of corroborating evidence. Okay, good. So as you know, I work in the area of knowledge management. If you look on a job board today, you will see that most of the positions Related to knowledge management have to do with technology required to to capture and curate, classify and then distribute knowledge from one source to another. And and so it's very technology heavy thing traditionally that's when people think of knowledge management, they think about SharePoint and they think about these tools that, you know, you use to collaborate in the workplace and things like this and document repositories and where we have to store all our files and things like that. That's what people generally think of as knowledge management. Well, as you know, I've been working on this project with the international Olympic committee, uh, which is called structured interviews where we go and we interview the heads of all the functional areas in an organizing committee over the life of that committee, which is seven years. And collectively, we have now captured over eleven thousand responses to questions that have been answered by these interview subjects, and I am now going through and conducting analyses of these. One of the topics that I just did a couple of weeks ago, or I just presented a couple of weeks ago to uh, the knowledge management team in the IOC, was a topic of games learning. We have a question that we ask about learning in the in the um, in the standard questionnaire and the question asked them about specific external resources that they found most helpful to them, which could be the IOC staff, the advisors, people from previous organizing committees, uh, documentation found on the IOC's knowledge platform called OGK Olympic games knowledge. Um, The, the games reference materials like host city contracts and, Guides, you know technical manuals and things like this, so we asked them this question, and we asked people to kind of respond and So, as part of this analysis I, I I took a look at the responses of these questions, and overwhelmingly, the responses showed that they thought that people were the most helpful resource. They mentioned the IOC staff, the advisors, people from previous organizing committees. And those were the top three responses, wasn't even close. And then the the next three, or kind of the bottom three responses, were kind of the knowledge assets, the documentation, the the extranet, or now the Olympic Games knowledge um, system that organizing committees can connect to, to find and research documentation. So the big takeaway from that was uh, from a knowledge management perspective, what we need to do is not be so focused on documents and files and these kind of things what we have to do is create ways for people to connect with each other so they can share knowledge and also su- support that or with making it easy for people to find the assets you right. know for the for, uh, i as a knowledge producer <laughs> know where everything is and i as a knowledge consumer know who to talk to which is a knowledge producer that's relevant to me who can then find that information for me and help me uh so it's a very people focused thing and and it's going exactly to where you're saying well we could have ai you know uh help us and and we see this all the time online now there are all these kind of bots you you go to a website you need to schedule an appointment to get your car fixed you need to find out a uh you know, fix a problem that you're having with your computer or whatever it is, you always start talking to a bot. <laughs> right, exactly. then if they can't resolve the situation, then, you know, uh, they send you on to a live person. Uh, but I really think that, that, uh, as you were saying, moving forward, we need to view these, these things as, as assets that help people connect with each other. And, right. And it's really to kind of facilitate and strengthen the human interaction, because as you said, people still want that. They still we they need still, it. Christian. They, and I learn best when I'm talking with
1: another person and they're telling me their story uh, and. Okay, so so what you just said right now is super important as a human skill going forward, and that is story. Warren Buffett says that being able to tell a story is one of the most – public speaking and specifically storytelling is one of the most important skills that you can develop. Why? Because we as humans demand stories. Because we need an emotional connection to the information that we're receiving. So many people in, in the sciences and engineering and project management are all about facts and data. But that is not what causes people to change or move or learn. It's connecting those facts to stories that, I mean, when something happens we, that we can't explain, we create a story to understand it, right? That's what we've done for for centuries and and millennia actually. So as humans, we crave emotional connection to each other and to the events that are happening around us. And that's how we learn and grow and actually absorb into our our database, right? And so that can't be unless we get the matrix where we can actually download hardwired stuff and learn how to fly a helicopter with. You know, a download. That's not going to happen until we have. You know, until we have technology that's going to take over. Until then, it's stories. It's connecting on a human level, and that's not going to go away. And machines can't replace that.
0: Again, another piece of evidence for for this is the increasing popularity of podcasts. Yes. Because basically that's what a podcast is. It's story time. We get on here and we just start talking about our experiences and we share stories and it's our human inclination. When we find something that, that makes us feel good inside to want to share it with people. Right. That's why we're doing this podcast. Right. Right. we have discovered things that we feel are relevant and important to us that have an impact on our lives. And we want to turn around and share that with other people because there's no real fun or joy in just holding it to yourself. You just want that you have this natural desire to, to kind of share those things. And there's a natural desire for people to hear those kinds of things. And so here we are doing these podcasts and people are listening and it's just A a nice little tiny illustration of the point that you're making, which is we want this kind of connection and, and stories are a great way to make this kind of connection. We might have to just change the topic of this podcast episode because, because we've already gone about 25 minutes down this direction and we may
1: want to just keep on going this way because well, let's, let's, let's do, let's, let's bring it home. I mean, uh, so, so what else can we, we talk about? And I love that this is, this is so extemporaneous today, right? I mean, we, we didn't have an agenda or a script when we, when we decided what to talk about you know, you just asked me about my week and what I did. And then this all, this all came about, but it is so relevant today. I mean, I just, I just downloaded because I'm talking about this topic because I think it's relevant for people in all professions, the skills that we need to develop. And I just downloaded an article today that is reinforcing what I'm experiencing. My experiences is that COVID is actually speeding up the process towards um, this this AI implementation and, and of course big data is huge. And, and right now only about maybe 10% of companies are really utilizing this, but these are the largest companies. And you have companies that like Unilever and, and lots of other big companies that they use AI technology to interview people and they eliminate people just by the, the interview that you do on your phone. And so they're, so, so they're doing it much quicker. They're finding better candidates and it's just, I I mean, you have to be able to be more human in today's world. So the skills that we're losing that are going to make you more successful are making it so you don't even get the job in the first place. It's, it's really interesting. Super interesting. Super
0: interesting. Just before you get there. So on the weekend, um, my wife said, "Oh, you know, Amazon's hiring like a bunch of people, and they're giving people a thousand dollar bonuses to join and work in a warehouse." Well, right. I really have no desire at my age and level of physical fitness to go do that. We've talked about working at UPS earlier. Um, UPS is also hiring people, but I was curious what the process was like um, because I thought, frankly speaking, you know, one of my kids maybe would like to do this, and I'm, so I was curious to see what. What the positions entailed and what they had available. And so I went online and actually went through this application process, (laughs) expecting that I would just read a job description and have a place where you upload your resume or your CV and that would be that. But no, it's like a total online assessment where they ask you a series of questions, you play a bunch of games where you're moving stuff around and sorting packages and things like this according to certain rules. And they use all of that to basically make their decision as to whether they're going to hire you or not. Totally eliminating the, the human component and having the computer using its algorithms determine whether you would be a, a good candidate or not. And I stopped when it gave me shifts. Like, do you want to work Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday from this time? On, well, actually, <laughs> so, you, so you made it. I guess I made it. Oh, but, okay. <laughs> but but it's just to go with you. With what you're, you were saying is, I didn't talk to anybody. It was right. it was uh, just going well, there's through. A,
1: there's a answering, answering questions,
0: playing, watching a video, doing some online games. You know this gamification
1: thing. It was uh, right. it was. Quite different than anything that I'd expected. Well, there's a company here in Utah, and um, I can't remember the the name. I could actually play the video; and the sound would come through. We could uh, we could put it on the uh, on the on the video as well. But, but that's all that they do. It's called Higher View. I just remembered Higher View V U E. And uh, they're based here in, in Utah. And these are the companies like Amazon and and Unilever that are using to do these uh, online. Uh, interviews. Now, you remember, we've been talking about UPS and our experience when we were going to college, right? So my son got the job, and he's a loader. And they have this new huge state of the art warehouse. Apparently, it's the fifth biggest and in the world, and they are ready to expand if the demand is there. And they'll be the second largest, I guess, outside of Louisville, Kentucky. But what what he said is, you know, you worked in the in the sword. Is that correct? I did. Guess what does does all the sorting today? They must scan the packages and flip them to whatever everything trucks. Everything is done by scanning. So they have unloaders and loaders, and everything else is done by AI, and it's all routed by machines and, and computers. So that's eliminated how many jobs for, uh, you know, I, I remember we had like, I don't know, 50, 60 people on a shift that were sorters at least. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Um, but so I, I wanted to share this audio with you. One of the things that deep learning has allowed is an Amazon poly. You can look this up Amazon, Amazon poly, and you can, you can, uh, purchase this, uh, AI voiceover or th- these robots that can, uh, you, they can do all kinds of things for you. So this company AG monitoring that I was talking about, the, the, the computer comes on and answers the phone and has actually been learning, right? They've they've entered like 10,000 scripts and then they have been learning through responses of customers. And, and so the bot begins to learn and begins to respond differently. That's why it's going to take a couple of years for the machines to actually learn. So when there's an emergency, they can prioritize the calls. And here's why this is important. They monitor emergency calls like fire, burglar, um uh health right if you know help i fall and i can't get up or heart attacks or stuff like that and so life threatening services and they're supposed to answer these calls within within 10 seconds well they're averaging 30 seconds with outliers at 60 seconds can you imagine if you're in an emergency you're being burglared and it takes you a minute i mean that's like an eternity and it's causing them to lose customers and so with this bot, they're actually able to answer the phones automatically between one and three seconds. And now what they want to do is they want to prioritize emergencies over low-priority calls. And think of the millions of dollars that just that alone can save, right? When you get on Siri or, or Google, um, you know, Alexa, it, it's almost like this... You know it's a robot, right? But the 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 voice realism is improving like crazy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play, and it should come through. You should hear it on your end, all right? I'm gonna play. This is Amazon Polly's AWS, um, basically robotic voice. See what you see. What you hear. Tell me. Give me the thumbs up if you hear it. Amazon Polly is a service that turns text into lifelike speech, allowing you to create applications that talk and build entirely new categories of speech-enabled products. In addition to standard TTS Voices, Amazon Polly makes available Neural Text-to-Speech and TTS Voices, delivering groundbreaking improvements in speech quality through a new machine learning approach, thereby offering to customers the most natural and human-like text-to-speech voices on the market. Neural TTS technology also supports a newscaster reading style that is tailored to news narration use cases.
0: Yeah, that's pretty impressive. So I mean, what what do you notice about that? Well, it still sounds a bit artificial because part of that is it's using the voice that we've heard before with Amazon. So so you're familiar with the with the voice print. I will say I've actually used these artificial voiceovers on occasion for some things that I have done earlier this year. And it's awesome. Like you can just put a text in online. And for yeah. free, you do free samples of this. You can like copy and paste a text that you want read. You can choose from, you know, 20 different male voices, 20 different female voices in American English. Or if you want a British accent, you can do that or an Australian accent or whatever. Yeah. And, and it doesn't sound totally perfect. You can still kind of tell.
1: Um, but it's pretty amazing what can be done. Well, think about it. I mean, you right now on our phones, if you pull up a news article and don't have time to read it when you're doing something else, you can actually have it read for you by AI. Think about vision impaired or blind people just the benefits. And there's so many uses. Uh, let me show you this picture uh, right here. So this is, this is the uh, first 7-Eleven in China that is completely unmanned. No, no employees What's My son says, well, well, who cleans it? I'm sure they have to have somebody that comes in and cleans it. But eventually that'll be done by robots, too. You remember iRobots, all those robots cleaning off the freeway. And yeah, yeah. (laughs) but I I, I imagine that will happen. But here is in this country, we have these Amazon Go stores. I've been to one in San Francisco. And you go in the store, there's no checkout. You just have to have an app. So we'll eventually just walk into stores and we have the app anything that we pick up will be noted as we walk out of the store will be charged. And so we're going to eliminate, you know, in retail stores, we're going to eliminate salespeople and, and retail monitoring and it will stop theft, right? You won't be able to buy or sell unless you have this app or chip or whatever that immediately charges your account. So these are some things that are happening right now to replace jobs. And there's so many more that we could, that we could talk about. And it's, it's just fascinating that it's, that it's happening. And what we need is those skills. Like I said, the number one skill that companies are looking for is empathy. You know, my, my son in law used to work for Bain. I think I've talked about that before. Yep. Right. And he, he, uh, started his own firm. And I'm just still, was... Hey, I'm still seeing your screen by the way. Where are you? Oh, sorry. Oh,
0: there you are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sorry. He, um, he started his own company with his, with his, with his brother and they're, they're doing fantastic. But he said that when they interviewed candidates for, for Bain, you know, consulting or, you know, even the financial side, they had to have an immediate impact when they were hired. So of course they had to have the ability to uh, do incredible analysis and, and, and understand the numbers. But more than that, they had to be able to get the the trust of their clients immediately and not come in and say, this is what you need to do. Because at companies like McKinsey and and Bain, when, when they do a good job, they do it with their client. They partner with the client and get them on board with the suggestions and the change. They don't do it for you or to you. And that takes those take some very human skills, right? Of persuasion and empathy and understanding. And so he said empathy is about two thirds of the of the process. And this is a very hard skill. There was a there was a CEO in Germany that said that um, they implemented an empathy training program over six weeks and improved their customer service scores by six percent. He, he said this is a hard skill that we have to have, and if you don't have it you're going to struggle and since i think it's been um 1975 uh, till about 2000 we've been keeping track of empathy among college students has been steadily declining and we've seen a sharp increase in that decline since 2000 in, in college empathy which is interesting right we have a whole society that that wants to serve and 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 uh, you know care about people we think right but empathy is actually decreasing. And why do you think that is, Christian? I
0: don't know. I don't know, Spencer. Um, As you were talking, I was thinking about, well, if it's a skill that's so essential, then maybe we need to rethink a little bit our curriculum in uh, primary and secondary education so that we put more emphasis on these skills because those are really not taught. You know, we were very, uh, we, we recognize how important STEM is, you know, the that's right. Science, technology, engineering, math. And uh, so w- we emphasize that. And, and we do that because it drives uh, test scores. And we know our competitors in other nations like Japan, for example, uh, you know, they're very heavily focused on annual exams and these tests. And so everybody's kind of geared up to test to the, towards those things. But I don't remember taking an empathy
1: class in elementary, right. junior high or high school or college for that matter. So so here's here's the reason, you know, technology, we're just we are so connected to our electronics that we're we're learning how to speak in short sentences and texts and tweets. And we're just losing our ability to really connect with each other because of our reliance a lot on on technology. Our vocabulary is diminishing our ability to just connect with people one-on-one is, is hurting. Uh, I, you're right. I mean, STEM is really the strength of computers. So that's, those are the skills that computers are replacing, right? It's the, it's the science and technology skills, but it's the human side that we need to learn and the education system has to adapt to that, that we struggle with. Let me share with you what I believe empathy is really about. It's about responding appropriately to the situation, right? So if you're talking to a child, to a coworker, to a peer, to a boss, if you're talking to a police officer who's pulled you over, um, what's the appropriate response? If you're talking to a judge who is sentencing you, what's the appropriate response? If you are asking someone to marry you or to be your partner, what's the appropriate response? If you are responding to somebody who's attempting to kill you, so in a way, empathy is what allows the, the soldier or the fighter pilot to defeat their enemy. Why? Because they have enough respect for the opponent, opponent that they know them, that they understand them, they know their tactics, they they respect them and so that they can defeat them. In business, it's being able to understand our competitors. I mean, I was the CEO of a company, and one of the things I was striving to change in our culture was this idea that, That we had no competition, which was rubbish because anybody who didn't use us was a competitor. Because sometimes we have such hubris that we are, you know, we're, we're the best at what we do and there's nobody that does anything like we do. Well, that's not true. But if you're empathetic, you understand that the marketplace is changing, your customers may need you to change. The marketplace is demanding different responses from you, and therefore you learn how to respond appropriately. To me, that's a big part of what empathy is all about. That
0: totally makes sense. As you were talking about that there, Spencer, I was reminded of the Hippocratic Oath, which starts out right first, do no harm and And doctors, they practice that in terms of their medical, practice and diagnoses and procedures, so on and so forth. Uh, They take great pains to not do harm. Uh, But do we do that in our communication? Sometimes we just talk (laughs) and we don't give a lot of thought as to what the repercussions of our communication might be. So I like what you said a lot, which is we have to find the appropriate response.
1: You know, I I, I appreciate that. And I think that's one of the things that our guests that come on the show most appreciate about you is that you always ask these very thoughtful questions, which makes it very obvious that you are actually listening. And even though you have been trained in accounting, that's your background. I think one of the things that makes you so successful with your clients and with just people in general is your ability to connect and listen and relate. And and your humility, I think is something that is one of your Great, great qualities that that makes you such a successful person and leader.
0: Well, that's very kind of you to say, Spencer. I'll have to pay you after our podcast for that (laughs) very kind compliment. I Uh, mean, (laughs) no, but I I I do appreciate that very very much. Uh, For me, it just comes more from an intellectually curious point of view. I'm I'm actually super interested.
1: That's a great approach, but that shows you care. It's a it's a you're responding appropriately because
0: of that curiosity. I like. I feel every time we do one of these podcasts that I learn a ton of stuff from you, and so I've said it before. I just feel like I'm in a master class. You, you, you tell me these things, and I just sit here and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's awesome. Yep, okay, makes sense. Uh, that's great. So, um, I appreciate you, Spencer, for uh, being very knowledgeable and studious, uh, and having enough care for your clients and your peers and your colleagues and your friends to actually do the hard work, because I know that you, you study a lot uh, you work a lot of hours to keep educating yourself on things. And so for me as an intellectually curious person, uh, this is like a dream come true, right? I get to talk to somebody who who has a lot of knowledge and experience to share and can do it in a very effective way. I think that's another thing, uh, you know, as long as we're on the mutual admiration society track here, uh, I think that's another thing that um, that you do quite well is we talked about storytelling a few moments ago and you know how to tell a good story. Uh, and, and I think part of that comes with doing it a lot <laughs> And uh, it's not natural, Christian. And and, and part of it comes from your ability to 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 construct a narrative and, and which makes it compelling. And you just want to keep listening. You know, when someone can construct a narrative effectively, then that then it's really, really helpful. If they're very dry and boring, they seem uh, super disorganized, they don't know what they're talking about, they can't really back up any assertions with any facts, then an intellectually curious person will lose interest. Uh, But that's not the case here. So uh, thank you, Spencer, for for doing all you're doing with all of your clients and all the experience that you're willing to share with me and and with all of our listeners.
1: Thank you. Well, let me tell you one more story as we're wrapping up. So I was just talking to a, a CEO, I think it's been two weeks now. And she was part of one of the CEO groups I was was presenting to. And I did a one-on-one session with her afterwards. And she told me that she's part of the Stanford uh, Executive Program. And one of the skills that she was learning that was hardest for her was storytelling. So at the Stanford Executive uh, Education Program, they are teaching CEOs how to tell stories because this is a skill that is critical for a leader to have to be able to get people to buy in to their vision, to their strategies, to their ideas, the, the clients, the, the employees, everything. And so many CEOs struggle with this. And so learning these things, empathy, storytelling, communication, as you talked about, which we, we didn't really discuss today, and and several other, these human skills will help you to be more effective as a leader and actually give you a competitive advantage in the job market and your ability to succeed as you grow through your career.
0: It's so interesting to hear that you've got executives that are struggling with these what you would think would be basic skills, right? But we do we don't learn these things in school and right. and so we have to learn them out here in the workforce and you are in prime position to help people learn these skills, Spencer. So as we wrap up our podcast, for this episode, if people want to talk to you, they want to learn more about how you can help them build empathy within themselves or in their organizations, develop communication and storytelling skills, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you?
1: Thank you, Christian. They can, uh, you can email me at spencer at altiumleadership.com. That's A-L-T-I-U-M leadership.com. Visit our website at altiumleadership.com. Fantastic, Spencer.
0: Oh, people, you
1: You can find me on LinkedIn.
0: You can find me on Facebook, although I don't do much there, but you can email me cnapier, c-n-a-p-i-e-r at gp4.com, g-p-f-o-u-r.com, or you can visit our website at gp4.com. Spencer, it's been a really fun, impromptu, improvisational podcast today. I really enjoyed it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon.